Hello all and welcome back to another episode of the Strategic Whimsy Experiment. My name is Jennifer Hahn. And I'm Sarah Callen. And the Strategic Whimsy Experiment is a weekly gathering place filled with conversations about the films that shape our lives. Today, we are going to be reviewing the much-anticipated David Fincher film, Mank, which was released on Netflix um, on Friday, December 4th. All right, so let's start off maybe with an IMDb summary for Mank. Sarah, take it away. All right, Mank follows screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz's tumultuous development of Orson Welles' iconic masterpiece, Citizen Kane. All right, and in true sweet tradition, let's start off with our sentence, one-sentence summaries of this film. Sarah, I am very curious to hear yours since I know you are so <laughs> gleefully excited for this film to come out and very expected as well. Yes, I was quite excited. And so like I was, I was trying to come up with my, my summary and I just... Nothing was really coming, so I just took it from a line in the film. Ooh. And so my summary is, the narrative is one big circle, like a cinnamon roll. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh my gosh. I feel like that sums it up quite nicely. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, my summary is, proof that it's possible to make films that are stylized without being decadent, message-driven without being frustratingly obvious. Mm, yes. Yep. Okay, so let's start off with initial thoughts of Mank. I the whole time I was watching this, I was thinking to myself, is this living up to her expectations? <laughs> is she satisfied or is she disappointed? Sarah, what were your thoughts on this film? <laughs> um there's so much to this film. Like this as I was uh, kind of going over my notes, I, I, there's so much to talk about. I kind of don't even know where to start. Um, so I, uh, I like to, to pride myself on being a person who doesn't miss a lot of things in movies. Um, I usually catch a lot, uh, the first time I watch a movie. And this is one of those when it was over that I was like, I need to watch this again. I can't just watch this once. So I have now seen this movie twice, and um, I have to say that now watching it a second time, I appreciate it even more. Um, the first time I watched it, uh, Citizen Kane was really fresh in my mind because I had just watched it the night before. So I was doing a lot of comparing between the two films because the narrative structures are so similar, the themes are so similar, you know, Mank is shot as if it was shot in the 1930s. So there's just a lot of commonalities between the two. And then the second time that I watched it, um, I tried to view it completely independently of Citizen Kane itself and just tried to watch Mank on its own. And it, it holds up, I think, either way. But the second time I was able to really appreciate some of these subplots that the film goes into and some of the characters that um, that that we spend a little bit more time with. It was just, there's so much that's right about this film. The, the writing is incredible. The score is absolutely phenomenal and helps make this movie as good as it is. The acting is great. All across the board, you see Fincher's perfectionism, in the best way possible. Like there's just, there's so much that's so good about this movie. Ah, and it's just so layered. It's so rich. It's so dense. Um, there's just a million things to talk about with this. So I'm super pumped to be able to finally talk about Mank. We have been anticipating this film for several weeks, maybe months. Furiously, Google searching to see when it was being released and alas, the time has come. So indeed, it sounds like it has uh, lived up to the bar that we've set for it. Um, I I was just kind of taken by the fact that this film feels so different from most of the films that are being released today, both in its um, 
style, obviously, that's like kind of the most most blatantly obvious part of it, but there's so much depth and layered messages and narratives and um, characters that I found myself comparing this film to a lot of other films that are um, being made and created today and was just appreciating the fact that there was so much to mull over, so much for my mind to chew on. Whereas I think a lot of films that are created in the more recent years tend to be a little bit more linear. They're centered around a theme that we can easily grasp and we're following how that evolves over the course of two hours. And everything is kind of centered around that central theme. And this film was able to have so many um, layers pieced together uh, while not being muddled and still maintaining its focus and still having uh, an arc for us to, to anchor to. And so it was almost like this was such a treat for my, my eyes to feast on, but also for my mind to just mull over all of the details, the lines, the, the, the arcs and the characters that are being portrayed throughout this two hour experience. It was it's like an overwhelming of the senses, but also for the mind, which I find I'm not, I don't have that same experience uh, often. Yeah, yeah. I felt uh, very similarly in that there was just so much to absorb and, and there are so many different little details. There are so many little um, plot lines. There are so many things that you can just uh, kind of like let your mind wander about. You can mull over all of these different, very weighty concepts. And it's so ambitious to have uh, all of these different themes packed into one two hour long movie. And I think uh, it it goes back to the, the tightness of the script and how, um, you know, everything was so fast paced and just... Uh, moving so quickly, but you also have the character development in there as well. And uh, I think it was just a, a superbly written script that just anchored this whole thing that took us on such a, a crazy journey that you're right. I'm not sure that we've had uh, too many other movies quite like this that are quite this rich uh, in the recent past. Yeah, and I think um, to your point about this being fast-paced, there's and there's just so much to to mull on. There's a lot that happens that we don't have a lot of exposition for. We're kind of thrown into the action. Um, and other films, I think, try to achieve this, but it ends up feeling really muddled. And as the viewer, it feels like we're kind of wandering, or it's it's easy to get lost. But the way that this script was put together, it was clear what time period we were in and where but a lot of the characters that were introduced to the um the things that happen and the, the conversations that happen we it almost feels like we are living amongst it because we don't have the full context for a lot of those moments but we have enough to be able to figure it out and to figure out how these pieces fit together and striking that very delicate balance of throwing us into the action, but also giving us enough to be able to piece things together is quite a difficult task. It, it truly showcases the fact that there was an understanding of what viewers need and when and how much, which those those levels and tuning those levels is something that is we often talk about with, with really great films, films like Parasite, you know, being on time and giving enough information at the right moments. I think this film does a really great job of that. It even kind of pushes the boundaries of of that as well. Um, yeah. And Mank does another thing that we both love so much is that it, it honors the intelligence of the viewers and it doesn't try and dumb things down for us. It, it knows exactly where it's going. It knows what it's doing. And it's like, you just got to hop on for the ride. And I know that you can keep up and you can keep pace. Um, 
And the great thing is, living in 2020, afterwards, you can go on a Googling spree if you, you know, need to find out more about any of these characters or or what was happening. Because, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't know very much about this California gubernatorial race. I didn't know a whole lot about Upton Sinclair and, and all of that. So it was kind of great to to watch a movie and actually learn something and then have something to go back later and kind of research and learn more about as well. Yes, I was Googling throughout this film, but I found myself like being pulled back because I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm missing so much context. There's so much that happens in every minute and second of this film. And so my attention was a little bit split. I'm, I think it helped me understand kind of the implications of the plot and the moments that happen. So I'm grateful for that. But I do wonder, you know, if I were to see this in a theater, truly just immersed in the experience with all of these questions that I would have to figure out after leaving the theater, um, how my my viewing experience have been different. I almost maybe would have wanted to go back and just watch this and put the phone away and keep the tabs closed and just immerse myself in this world because there is a little bit of the like going back and forth from my Googling context to the context of the film. But for some films, I feel like I'm able to to search things up on the side. And this was not one of them. I had to pay attention to every line in order to, to keep up. Yeah. Yeah. This is not one of those that you can have like one eye on something else. Like you shouldn't doom scroll through Twitter while watching Mink. Like this is one of those films that kind of demands your full attention, but is also worthy of your full attention. Like to, to your point, I don't feel like we get very many of those films these days. So it was just, uh, it was such a joy that that Mank is that way. Yes. And there's also so much goodness in the script of this film and the dialogue. Like it was, I we, you know, we were talking about this being a feast for the senses, but also for the mind. I felt that way about the dialogues and the, the the quip between different characters. Um, there's so much good writing in this. And, you know, for a film that's about a screenwriter, this is very fitting. And everybody gets some good lines, which is incredible. Because I feel like a lot of times it'll be like one character or a handful of characters gets the really, really good lines. But even some of the the secondary or tertiary characters have some just great moments. And that was one of the things that I loved was just this rhythm of everybody has something to say. Everybody has something important to contribute. And the writing um, just allows these actors to shine. So like even um, Tumpets Middleton, who played Sarah, who was Mank's wife, she even had some phenomenal lines, even though we see her for only a handful of moments in the film. I feel like in, in other movies, she would just get, she would just be bland and boring. She would have no personality, nothing really interesting to say. But this one even gives her um, some important lines, gives her a story. And I we've said it already many times, but this script, this writing is just absolutely phenomenal. Um, it was written by Jack Fincher, who is David Fincher's late father, and uh, he did absolutely incredible with this. Indeed. I think the scene that just had me filled with joy is the birthday party scene for L.B. Mayer, and it is so dialogue heavy and so quick, not just in the dialogue itself, but also the the way that the camera is moving from character to character as they're talking around the room. And it goes on for a good chunk of time. I think most films would have, you know, given a little bit of time to this birthday scene, had some like one or two interesting conversations and then move on to the next scene. But we get just these characters hanging out at a birthday party uh, talking about so many different topics and jumping from one to the next. And in the moment, uh, it's unclear, you know, how this will play out or what significance this has later. And only in retrospect, you see a lot of the 
dynamics and opinions of the people in that room um, playing out in their actions or in bigger ways later on in the film. But for just those, that good like five to ten minutes where we're just getting to hang out with these characters as they um, converse in in this really, really rich way, it's such a joy. Like I just want to rewatch that scene again. Yeah, that scene is absolutely great. And what I what I love is how strange the this the setup of that scene is. Like the the staging and the the placement of each of these characters feels so odd when you're watching it. Like I I was watching it going like why David Fincher? Why did you why did you make it like this? Why is the conversation happening? across this giant room between all of these different pockets of people and people who are talking to each other aren't facing each other. Like it's just such an odd setup, but it also kind of brilliantly shows the opulence of this, uh, I don't know, vein of society. And just, it kind of like puts you off balance almost. Like this is not how this normally works which at least made me want to lean in and pay even more attention because it was so unusual and unconventional. That's so true. I mean, I don't go to parties and shout across the room all of my political opinions with the entire room listening in. Like it's usually little pockets of groups of two or three or four or five people huddled, the music's blasting. Like the parties that I've been at have never looked like this. (laughs) Indeed. And have you had like a piano player just like randomly interjecting like a few (laughs) notes here and there? (laughs) Like, It's just so good. Yeah, that's great. So one of the other things uh, that you mentioned was around comparing Citizen Kane with Mank as you were watching it. And I very much um, had Citizen Kane top of mind as well, um, having just watched it. And... I think what was interesting to me about both the films and um, what I think is distinct about Mank specifically as well is that they are both films that are captivated by the life of a man and the character of a man. And I think a lot of films today tend to be more action-driven. It focuses on these inciting events that continue to push the stakes higher and higher and higher, right? And it was refreshing to have these films just kind of detail the many complex layers of a human being and create this kind of really layered uh, portraiture of these men. And I, I found that to be an interesting similarity between these two films, but also one a a character trait that has really set these films apart from many of the others that typically um, are coming out today and and the nature of those types of films. And it's not to say that Mank was devoid of action or Citizen Kane was devoid of action, but all of those moments of um, drama typically were, again, centered around a, a man or a, a human being's um, character and his life and those moments that define and shape the decisions that they make, which I found to be really, really interesting and uh, made me think about how this fits in with the, the corpus of other films that we typically watch today. Yeah, I was thinking about um, last year, I... <laughs> made the joke about um, the Oscar nominees for last year for Best Picture, and a lot of them were um, old white men filled with regret. And so I feel like both Citizen Kane and Mank fall into that vein of old white men filled with regret. Um, But you know what? When it's done well, it's a formula for a really great film. But what what I loved about both Citizen King and Mank, is that they used flashbacks so well. Like, we just spent a whole episode last week just destroying Hillbilly Elegy because it used flashbacks so poorly. And both 
Citizen Kane and Mank show you how a flashback-heavy film can be done correctly and can be done to enhance the narrative structure instead of detracting from it and how like when when flashbacks are used poorly it's just it's such lazy bad writing but when it's used correctly it can just make a film absolutely sing and it can make it so much uh more rich and i feel like that's what we see um especially in citizen kane like that's what i was absolutely blown away by in that film was how how every flashback had such a clear purpose and going through all of these unreliable narrators narrators to to learn about this mystery man and then in mank we have something kind of similar but it doesn't become as apparent what exactly is going on until almost the last scene when it all finally comes together and we realize like oh okay this is why we've been flashing back which is beautiful and ingenious in its own special way um but yeah those the flashbacks add such a richness to this and um I even think the jumping through time in Mank could have been kind of confusing but they handled it really well and so you knew about what time you were in um and and it just I don't know. It just enhanced enhanced all of it. You know, it kept you on your toes wondering, okay, where are we in in the the passage of time um because not everything was linear and it doesn't have to be if you are paying attention, which Mank really forces you to do. Yeah, I agree. I think um the the slug lines that were included uh were a helpful anchor point. I think it would have been way more confusing um, had they not included some of those slug lines to give us a little bit of an anchor point. It would have felt a little bit more like Little Women uh, where you're like, okay, where are we now? But at least you had like the visual of the hairstyles changing and the setting change. But I think it was helpful that they added those little slug lines. I think what was also interesting to me is that in some moments, I'm trying to piece together all of the scenes that and how they fit on a chronological timeline. But there were often a lot of times where I'm like, I actually, it doesn't matter as much to me because what I'm interested in is seeing at some point in the past, this character did, encountered, talked to, thought about X, Y, and Z thing. And again, I think it goes back to this um layering effect that this film achieves for creating this portrait of a man where it's almost a little bit like uh piecing together pieces of a collage and together it adds different meanings to the different moments that you see him in for example seeing some of the um uh political uh intervening that mgm does kind of begins to create this level of cynicism and skepticism and and whatnot within manx character and so to see him later still writing and still wanting to create um kind of adds this like interesting nuance to the type of man that he is how he relates to his art and his craft in the midst of these previous moments where he was um, kind of disillusioned by the systems that he's working for and the institutions that he's operating in. And so to your point around the, the flashbacks adding more instead of taking away and instead of being lazy, I think um, it really did its job well in creating this more nuanced, more interesting uh, collective collage of a human. And it really takes us into like the behind the scenes inner workings of old Hollywood. You know, I I kind of love how uh, cynical this movie is. Um, and it, it does it in such like a cheerful way, though. It's like a playful cynicism, which I personally really appreciate. Um, and I, I feel like so many of the, the movies that we've had about old Hollywood are you know, kind of revering Hollywood and like, oh, it was this perfect place where dreams came true and magic happened. And Mank is like, nah, man, it was like super corrupt. These people were shady. 
Like, it was not a great place to be, but they were raking in the money. And if you wanted money, you went here. And I just, I appreciate that kind of dark look at at old Hollywood. You know, we still love the things that, that came out of it, but the system itself was really, really corrupt and, and crappy. And I, I think that Mank does such a good job at pointing that out, but not um, old Hollywood into like this caricature. You know, it'd be really easy to make it too villainous and these um, executives into these like, uh, I don't know, like over overly bad guys. Um, but instead, we just kind of see like, oh, that's how things were done. This is how this business was handled. And I don't know, maybe that Maybe that cynicism doesn't work for everybody, but I thoroughly enjoyed that bit of it. Yes, I jotted down a similar note around there being almost this like matter of fact uh, telling or perspective of old Hollywood. Um, it wasn't overly rosy, but also not overly scathing. I think a lot of maybe what helped with that is that you see the actions that these um, – systems and studios are doing and yet there is this like beautiful dreamy soundtrack playing and the visuals are just as stunning so there's still a little bit of that um magical dreaminess that we do associate with old hollywood as well and and the combination of those two things together i think is what helps balance both of the perspectives um that are often assigned to old hollywood Yes. Can we talk about the score? Cause, oh my gosh. Oh my. <laughs> oh, it was just, I, I'm going to run out of adjectives to describe good things. Uh, it was, it was perfection for me, honestly. And it was so different um, than what I would have expected from, from these creators and these musicians. And it it was so brilliant the way that it was done because it, it kept everything moving forward in the right way. So like in a lot of those flashbacks, especially when they're they're on the lot and, and at the studio, you have this like really, really fast paced tempo. And then it, it seamlessly handed off to this like fast paced back and forth banter. And then whenever there's a break, then it's filled again with this with this score that is just keeping everything moving forward. And it just, at every point, it enhanced what was going on in the screen. And that, man, I, I think that in many ways, the score is the MVP of this whole movie because it, it, it enhanced every bit of action. It enhanced every moment of dialogue. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. Yeah, and it also receded in the moments where it needed to be qu be quiet and to not exist, which uh, again speaks to the level of intentionality and um, attention to detail that Fincher is so known for. Because there are some moments where we don't have any any score and any soundtrack, and then it kind of comes in at just the right moment. Yeah, this movie would not be the same without the soundtrack. I just want to listen to it without the film itself. It's so good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it might become my new favorite uh, <laughs> writing playlist, but we'll see. Time will tell. I love it. So one of the, the moments um, that I found really interesting, again, this was, I think, one of uh, those moments that I alluded to in my summary around this film being message-driven, but without needing to be incredibly obvious or for it to be the, the focal point of the entire film um, is around the smear campaigns against Sinclair by MGM Studios. And I think this is, well, my prediction is that this film will hopefully age well because I think this theme of what is what is proper reporting? What is the news? What is fake news? Is going to be with us for quite quite some time as technology 
uh, continues to advance rapidly and we have new and new f- ways to fabricate things, I think this is just going to continue to be top of mind for us for a while. But there are a couple of lines that happen actually in different scenes that I think were incredibly poignant and very relevant to our current times um, around how moving pictures are able to manipulate people's opinions and shape and brainwash, dare I use the word. Um, L.B. Mayer on election night while they're sitting at the table together has this line, which I thought was fantastic. He says, give the people what they need to know in an emotional way and you can expect they'll do the right thing. And this is so fitting for the state of our current news media, but also just the social media news source that has arisen in the past couple of years, where there is this prominent um, emotional tone to so much of the news and the headlines that we are fed. Um, And I think it's a powerful tool that can be used in some of the right ways, but some of the wrong ways as well. And I think Mank has in a line that he says to Shelley, who is working on the pro- these propaganda films, he says, it's not news and it's not real. And I think it's really fascinating to see the ways that when we as human beings construct images together and uh, piece together some sort of narrative, whether it's true or not, There's a lot about that that can be so convincing without the right facts or the desire to fact check from those that are receiving. And so that was a really interesting theme and I'm so glad that they are including those moments like this. And it's, you know, again, up to us as the viewers to draw those connections and find that meaning and interpret it the way that we want to. But I love that they included some of those those themes in here. And, and it's kind of woven in quite seamlessly as well. And just the, the beauty of how they, they put that all together and, you know, to the point that you were making before, they fed us those pieces at all the right times, you know, that we know that Shelley is the one who, who was going to vote for Sinclair. And he was the one who ended up creating these propaganda films because he wanted the opportunity to direct, which we knew he wanted to do from the first time that we see him way in the beginning of the film. So it's just, it was so beautiful how all of these little pieces um, were lined up perfectly for us to understand the impact that that decision for him to direct those propaganda films was. And um, I also love that 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 was the thing that really um, changed Mank. You know, like that was the start of his character change because he had made so much money, he had made such a reputation and been so proud of the fact that he would just say whatever was on his mind. And whether it's good or bad, he just said it. And that ultimately led to his friend's death or it contributed to his friend's death. And I just, I love that this film was willing to, to go there and, and talk about the responsibility that, that creators have. And you and I talk about that all the time, um, that filmmakers really do have a responsibility with what they are creating. And I just, I adored that Mank had to go through that emotional turmoil to really get to that point where he was willing to take that responsibility that he had you know, sloughed off for his entire career. Yes, I jotted down the line that he says, I believe it's to Shelley again. He says, people in the dark willingly check their disbelief at the door, meaning the audience. We have a huge responsibility. And it's, you know, again, this line has slipped into this conversation and Shelley immediately goes and actually doesn't even respond to him making that statement. He tells him, that he has um, Parkinson's and and that moment is is kind of not maybe given the typical weight that we would see in another film where this is big dramatic moment he delivers Mink delivers this line and we as the audience have time to 
mow over that and, and let that sink in. But this film is so matter of fact and just kind of moving on to the next scene. But that that line that he delivers so perfectly captures that responsibility that you just mentioned of creators having this profound influence to shape and mold the viewers. And what we do with that has a huge effect on on all, uh, the course of our society, the way that people think, the values that our society holds. Um, yes, indeed. And I, I loved that Fincher includes that in this film almost as a way to acknowledge and to to show that he he too sees that responsibility, but also calling all the creators to recognize that responsibility that they hold as well. And it's so interesting that that is slipped into a movie um, that is a about the writer of what has been argue, argued and, and positioned as the greatest movie ever made. And so it's just, it's so fascinating on so many levels that this idea of creative responsibility is so heavy in this film, especially because there's so much, um, I don't know, mythology or lore around um, who who wrote uh, Citizen Kane and um, what all went into it and who it's really about and like all of these things. So it's just... It's it's an important point to make for the time that we're living in, but also it's kind of like a meta point about the <laughs> yeah. the creation of Citizen Kane. So it just it works on so many levels. Okay, which leads me into my question for you on the ending of this film. One, what did you think of the ending? I, I found myself wondering this uh, about three quarters of the way through the film. I'm like, I'm curious how how they're going to choose to end this and on what moment they will choose to end this with. So I'm curious what your thoughts were on the ending, but also on what the film maybe seems to suggest about that big debate that has been going on for decades and decades on who wrote Citizen Kane. It seems to be on one side of the dispute, and I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, um, so the first time that I, I watched it, I... I was like, well, what the heck, David Fincher? Like, this feels like you were kind of messing with the truth just a little bit there, buddy. Um, so I, I was a little annoyed the first time. And so then I, wa I watched it again. And the second time, I actually didn't mind the ending. And I think that the ending is a little bit more gray than I thought the first time around. Because the first time I watched it, I thought that this was... Um, like siding completely on Mank's side and going, Mank wrote the whole thing. It's all him. Facts be damned. But I think that this actually isn't that far from what really happened. Um, Cause it's been reported that Mank wrote the first, I believe it was two drafts and then, and Orson Welles was in the conversation, probably a lot more than what we see in the movie. And then Orson kind of put his his spin and his polish, and he he took it to where Citizen Kane finally landed. And I think that's that's what we see here in Mank because the first draft of a movie is never actually what gets filmed. But um, he Mank has a line in there um, where he says something to the effect of, "I created the narrative structure. It's up to Wells to do the rest." And I think that about sums up where this movie kind of leaves it. And that more or less is, is what happened. So I, I think that this film, while it definitely does have a point, I, I kind of loved that it was about Mank. You know, there's this whole like mythology around Orson Welles and um, his, his creativity and the fact that his first film was Citizen Kane. And like, there's all of this, like, I don't know, mythology around him. And I love that this film was willing to go, you know what? He did have help. There was this absolutely incredible writer who very, very much contributed to what makes Citizen Kane amazing. So let's focus on this guy instead. I, I love that this film was willing to go there. 
Yes. Um, there's a, no- a note that I jotted down that I was thinking about after this film ended around the power film to re- rewrite history and putting that in air quotes as I say it because I, I do wonder how much awareness, um, prominence that the figure of Herman uh, Mankiewicz would have in the broad public's um, knowledge base without films like this. You know, there I was reading an article about the fact that when Citizen Kane came out, it was marketed as the creation of Orson Welles. And what I love about this film, what I loved about Hamilton as well, is the ability for these artists to shine a light on other artists that may not have gotten the attention that they they deserve or the the recognition that they deserved. And so my original interpretation of the ending was all right, it like is David Fincher kind of suggesting that Mank was the one that wrote the screenplay, but I think your interpretation perhaps is a little bit more nuanced and I like it, which is that the film's goal is to shine a light on this man's life who contributed a whole lot to this um, iconic piece of work. Whether or not that means he was the sole creator or not, it, it almost is irrelevant because the goal is to spotlight this incredible artist and the film was successful in doing that. Um, on, in, in general, I was as, actually expecting a lot more of Orson Welles um, to be in this film than actually the film um, has of him. And you're right, the film pays a lot more attention to the person of Mank and kind of rightfully gives Orson Welles a little bit of um, the backseat so that we can truly spend our time as the viewers focused on on Mank, his journey, his his psyche, all of that kind of stuff. Um, kind of share, giving him the limelight uh, more so than he's gotten. And I think that the the portrayal of Orson Welles in this is fascinating because the first time we actually see him is when um, Mank is in the hospital bed and the way that they shoot him, the way that they shoot Orson Welles, the way that he's dressed, the score, everything makes him seem like a villain. And, um, and that is just so interesting to me. And then the other thing that I noticed throughout is that, um, the, the way that Orson is shot in other, in other moments is as if he is the monster in a monster movie. And, um, it could just be because they were trying to make him seem larger than life. Like Orson Welles was a big guy and he was a big personality. So like, I, I get it, but it was just so fascinating that we spend time with Mank and this group of writers who are concocting this like monster movie. And then almost every time we see Orson Welles, he's filmed as though he's a monster in a monster movie. So I think it's just those little tiny details, those little threads throughout that make this not only more interesting, but so much more fun as well. And you know that that was all intentional, like knowing David Fincher. Yep. That was no accident, (laughs) which is even better. Makes it even better. Yeah. Okay. Can we talk about uh, the, the organ grinder monkey parable? And that whole moment. So like when I, when I was watching and you first have the Gary Oldman drunk uh, regaling, crashing this whole dinner party about this, this idea and, oh, we're going to recreate Don Quixote. And like, I was blown away by that. And I was like, oh my gosh, Gary Oldman, you deserve all the awards. You deserve all the things. You're incredible. And then we finally... We we finally come to the end of that scene where it is Charles Dance as William Randolph Hearst and Gary Oldman walking down this long ass hallway and Charles Dance is just perfect in that scene. That whole scene is phenomenal. I have rewatched it so many times because every every moment of it is completely Fincher 
and it's absolutely perfect from the the people scattering as as the two walk through the door to Gary Oldman tripping up the step to the sinister um, score underneath like this opulent beautiful hallway that we're just like tracking them down and that story is so perfect for that moment it's this like beautifully veiled threat it's so ominous but also kind of respectful at the same time like ah it's just brilliant and I think it's the best part of the whole movie I'm just so pleased by that one scene (laughs) and for a film that is uh already so great like they really saved a lot of the good stuff for the ending of the film like that that's the the uh escalating climax moment where um so much goodness happens throughout the rest of the film but there's just the ending few scenes are really really well done which is difficult to do i was the whole time by the third act of the film i was wondering like how is this film gonna end like how do you keep the tension high how do you keep um the engagement high and really like nail this final final bit of the film and like leave us really satisfied the film really really delivers yep it really does Ugh, that that moment is just mm, it's just the icing on the cake um (laughs) another moment and it's a little thing that i thought was absolutely brilliant was um and and it goes back to what we were saying about the flashbacks like we have the flashback of of Shelley and then he takes his life and then we go back into the present and then we flashback again and we go to a funeral scene. And so like, of course, we're like thinking, you know, in linear yes. time that mm-hmm. this is going to be Shelley. And then, of course, it's like, nope, this is actually a few years later and it is actually Irving's funeral. And so just that little moment of oh, you think you knew where we were going? Nope, we went here instead. And we're going to make an even larger point than we would have if we had gone where you thought we were going. So I think that that even was just a beautiful piece of writing. Yeah, that was so good. Subverting our expectations truly and giving us even more than we would have expected. So good. I was like, I kind of gasped at that point. I was like, oh, well done, well done. That was a great swerve. Indeed. So I think another kind of like, I don't know, this is probably a really like meta thing, but it it brings me joy. Um, So Orson Welles, uh, he had this deal with RKO and I think he was going to make three films for them. I could be wrong on the number, but he was guaranteed um, carte blanche. He could do whatever he wanted with no oversight from the studio, which how crazy is that to give like this young, like 24 year old kid, like, Oh yeah, here's a bunch of money. Go do whatever you want. And from that citizen Kane was made. And so I, I love that, um, for Mank, David Fincher, who is not in his twenties, but he kind of got a similar deal from Netflix. He had put forth so many like good things for Netflix, so many profitable things for Netflix. They they let him make the movie that he has been wanting to make for over 20 years now. And so I just I think that that's another really interesting parallel between the two movies is that both of these were created by people who were kind of just given free reign and this is the incredible thing that they were able to come up with. Which is super meta because a lot of the themes and what Mank explores is kind of the, and also what Citizen Kane explores is like the capitalist mentality and kind of the, the, the ultimately the fact that these are institutions that are money making businesses, um, and yet ironically these great works of art have come without the constraints of understanding the the marketing components and the viewer audiences and really trying to predict a home run like there's a really interesting bit of irony there as well i was reading a um an interview 
done with David Fincher about Mank, and he talks a lot about the fact that Netflix has allowed for a lot more risk-taking in this very artistic, creative industry. And I've been someone, I know you have as well, that is um, kind of unsure about the way that streaming services will change or or evolve the way that we consume films and what this means for theaters and kind of the traditional studio system. Um, there's a lot that I love about the theater experience that I think we are losing in this like overwhelming uh, choice uh, array that we have on Netflix and the other streaming services. But one of the really wonderful things that is kind of a outcome or a side effect of the streaming platform is the ability for uh, more of these mid-budget dramas, adult dramas that may not be a huge tentpole moneymaker for a traditional studio with a traditional theater release, but that are beautiful works of art that were kind of getting lost by the the, um, previous studio system that was reigning for many, many years. And so it made me appreciate the the kind of uh, other parts and other ways that the studio system is being transformed by these streaming services. I'm I'm seeing some of the good that's coming from it. <laughs> yes, and there there is there is good. Uh, it's what I have to keep reminding myself of, even though there's a lot of trash that comes from. Um, you know, Netflix and the like, there is some good. And I mean, because if we're being honest, Mank wouldn't have been created if it had gone through the traditional studio system. That's why David Fincher didn't make it in the 90s when he originally wanted it to, because he knew it needed to be in black and white. And he just, nobody was willing to back him on that. So the fact that now Netflix was willing to take that risk and let him create a completely black and white film. No color version of this film exists is, is really cool. So thank you, Netflix. This is great. Very appreciative. Please don't make more trash though. Please keep making good things. There's like amidst the the pile of trash, there's like some, some good diamonds that also come from it. So yeah. I, we're like, I guess we'll, we'll take it all and then find the diamonds. What's also yep. interesting to me is that the marketing that Netflix does and the way that they're able to mold and wield people's attention is pretty fascinating to me. I, I'm curious to know in an alternate universe if this were released in a traditional theater experience, um, how many people would go see it? And I, like, there's a lot of like interesting ways to potentially market this film, but it it doesn't have all of the traditional pieces that get us to drive the 30 minutes to the theater, pay the $17 or however much movie theater tickets to us these days and and pay money to, to dedicate, you know, two hours of our time to. Um, doesn't fit within a franchise. It's kind of got this uh, cerebral um, atmosphere to it. And yet, when I logged on to Netflix to watch this film, I was delighted to see that this is number 10 being watched in the in the United States. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way that they've that Netflix has marketed this film. They have the banner images, they have the notifications. Like there's awareness about this film. Um that I'm curious if it would have gotten the same level of broad attention that I I see that it's getting now. And so that's kind of exciting. It's also kind of terrifying. Like Netflix has so much power to control what we are watching and this kind of bandwagon mentality of human nature um also plays into that like i'm sure this is like positive feedback loop of when you see something is number one or number seven on the list you are more likely to be intrigued and want to know about it and click on it and watch it but it's a it's another good side effect but also very powerful uh trait that netflix and these streaming services have as well yeah i'm i'm just um shocked that it's not higher on the list you know I you know the the day after Hillbilly Elegy came out it was number one on Netflix and Mank which is a far superior film um is like barely squeaked into the number 10 spot 
Um, so I think that that's really interesting to me. And uh, I'm still personally really, really proud that I have managed to subvert the Netflix algorithm because the person on this podcast who was the most excited about watching Mink did not have Mink at the top of my my screen when I logged in. It was not the banner image that they chose for me. So I just, I took that as a little point of pride that I, I have tricked the algorithm, even though I was so pumped to see Mank. It didn't know that I wanted to see it. It must be all of the rom-com reality TV that you're watching on Netflix, mm-hmm. Sarah. Yeah, gotta be. Just, just constantly. <laughs> yep. All the Hallmark movies, it. Desperate Housewives, <laughs> right up your alley. Yep. You know. <laughs> All right. I wanted to give a quick little shout out to Amanda Seyfried's performance in this film. I was pleasantly surprised. Um, she is in a lot of, you know, pop culture, popcorn kind of films uh, up until now. Uh, so to see her really deliver a great performance in this film in a, in a nuanced performance, um, it was really delightful to see. I'm intrigued to, to see what she does next and how her role in Mank may change the course of her career and how she's seen by the industry for what types of roles she can do because I was very surprised. Yeah, I, I think she's one of those that, you know, when I, when I see her name in a cast list, it's kind of like, nah, okay, that's cool. But she was so good in this and like the fact that she was able to banter with Gary Oldman the way that she was and and hold her own in in these scenes and and even kind of steal the limelight sometimes from from Gary Oldman from Charles Dance from these other like really impressive actors um I think was really really great and uh another one of my favorite moments was with with her and uh, Gary Oldman just kind of like walking through. Um, yes. Yeah, like it was just, it was so magical. It was that, you know, 1930s magic that we love. And she was able to, to show such a, an interesting character um, just in that little bit of time, like we didn't have a lot of time with her, but we were able to learn so much about who she is and about how complex of a character she is. And that, that largely goes to just her acting skills. Yeah. Because she plays a pretty archetypal character. Um, one that can easily be very flat, one that we've seen many times in films before, but she adds an interesting nuance in the way she delivers her lines where you sense that there's far more to her than just this pretty face who is married to a very wealthy, powerful man. There's this, uh, I don't know, this, this flair or this, this, uh, sharpness, um, about her that she kind of is aware far more than you would probably peg her to be aware of. And, that's in a lot of like the delivery of her lines. Granted, she had a lot of great lines to work with as well. So that was a plus. But man, I'm excited to see what she does next. Mm-hmm. She's been making some good choices recently. So I, uh, yeah, I think she's definitely one to watch for sure. Indeed. All right. Any other last thoughts before we wrap up? Yes. I would like to give uh, <laughs> two more shout outs. Um, the, the, the walk and talk, uh, with Mank and Joe and Mayer was just stunning. I, as an Aaron Sorkin fan, I will always be a huge fan of the walk and talk, but that moment was just perfect. The, the fast paced dialogue, the beautiful music, the, the interruptions as Mayer is talking and he is giving his entire philosophy about movie making and business in this one, uh, this one walk through this hallway and onto the lot. It was, it was just great. So I'm a big fan of the walk and talk. Good job, David Fincher and everybody involved. And then my other shout out is to Bill Nye, the science guy who played Upton Sinclair. 
And that was just a nice little cherry on top of a movie that I was already (laughs) a fan of. I don't think I knew that. I did. No, I did not. I was unaware. Oh, my goodness. Bill Nye the Science Guy is on to bigger and better things, apparently. What? I'm shook. Yeah, I was too because I recognized the voice. And so I was like, who is this guy? I know this voice. I know this actor. And it wasn't until I got onto IMDb and was scrolling all the way through the cast list that I saw that it was Bill Nye the Science Guy. Oh my gosh. Does everyone know about this? Like we need more people to know about this. This is great. <laughs> I want to know the story of how how did this come to be? I I don't know. I did not research this. I just got so excited that it was Bill Nye. So I, I'm, I'm satisfied with that. <laughs> that is too good. Wow. What a strange surprise <laughs> that is. You started saying Bill Nye the science guy and I was like, what? Where could this possibly be going? I know, right? Oh, man. I had to just try and keep you on your toes with that one. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? No. <laughs> uh, okay, I have one last shout out, which is the way that they shot the light streaming in through any window in this film was absolutely stunning. The same effect um, – was also in Citizen Kane. And I don't – I'm not a camera person, so I'm unaware of the, like, technical implications of how they did that or if it was just a, you know, side effect of the types of camera that they were using in Citizen Kane that they had to recreate in this film. But the light and the way that the light streamed in um, had this really ethereal effect. And I was just captivated. And it just added this, like, visually – stunning uh thing for my eye to feast on throughout this film so loved the way that they were able to manipulate the light yeah and and what I loved about that too is that in so many instances the the characters faces were darkened because the light was behind them and again like you said like we saw a lot of that in Citizen Kane so it was just another one of those like if you're aware of Citizen Kane, you you can pick up on these little details that you might not otherwise, um, I don't know, notice or put all that much weight into. But yeah, every one of those those lights and like knowing how David Fincher is in his movies, you know that each of those lights were positioned exactly where they were for that strategic reason. Uh, just to enhance the mood of every one of those scenes. So I think knowing the the filmmaker, knowing the the lore and everything about Citizen Kane just made everything just more rich. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. The like film noir type of visuals that Citizen Kane had, they very much uh, were able to um, deliver in a different way, but still capture that same essence in Mank, which I, like you mentioned, very intentional. And so I, I don't know, I feel like it's, it's such a joy to watch a piece of art created by an artist that you know cares about all of these little things because there's a joy in knowing that none of these were accidents and that there is a level of intention uh, paid to all of these things that we are oogling over. So it's... Ah, it's so fun. And then one of the other things that I just loved that's in kind of this like same vein is just the the fade to black. You know, again, like it's one of those, it's a little thing, but it just, it makes you feel like you're watching a movie from like the 30s or 40s and you're not watching a movie from today. Yes, and the opening credits as well. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, they were they were wonderful. Yeah. Oh, I was like <laughs> when it when it started, I, I read the little bit and then it <laughs> goes to the opening credits and I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm here for this." Like <laughs> I I already love this and we're 2 seconds in. Like it just it got me so good. And it uh tickled me a little bit to see like the words Netflix done in that style because we don't 
see that ever. Um, we usually see the red N and it's in this like very modern format. So to see the, that word specifically stylized in this old 1930s Hollywood style was, was great. <laughs> it's just one of those, those little treats if you're paying attention. Mm-hmm. Yep. So thoughts on the the potential Oscar chances for this film? What do we think? Oh, sweet Jesus. I, I who so. could say? Because I, <laughs> we learned last year that Sarah is not the one to trust with anything regarding the Oscars because I was <laughs> all wrong. Um, the, the hopeful part of me is like, yeah, it's going to get all the nominations and it's going to win a hell of a lot. But um, if that's what I want, the Academy's probably going to do the opposite. But <laughs> I do think that this should, it'll probably garner, mm-hmm. oh man, Lots of you noms. know, screenplay, best director, uh, supporting best actress, film, yeah. supporting actress. Uh, yeah, like production I mean, design, all the categories, yeah. costumes, sound editing like mm-hmm. so yep. i can see this like getting just a ton of nominations i don't know they might win one or two but i i sadly don't think that this is going to win many oscars but i'm sure it'll be nominated because it's that good yeah i'm intrigued it, we'll see what it's up against uh but i i agree with you i could see this being nominated for many categories we'll see which ones it will win. All right. Well, this was our review of Mank, David Fincher's new film. It is available on Netflix. Uh, We have sufficiently uh, gushed about it for an hour, so we can't recommend this film enough. We also recommend watching or rewatching Citizen Kane before watching this. Sarah, thank you for that suggestion. It was great. I, it was, I think it re- really made this a much richer experience having that context really top of mind uh, before watching Mink. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Strategic Whimsy Experiment. This podcast is fueled by our passion for stories and connection and is something we continue to do each week solely because we love it. This is our strategic whimsy experiment, and we encourage you to find a way to infuse a little whimsy into your day. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you tune into your favorite shows. Drop us a review letting us know your thoughts about Mank um, or about today's episode. You can connect with us on Instagram at Strategic Whimsy Experiment, on Twitter at Strategic Whimsy. Or you can email us at strategicwhimsyexperiment at gmail.com. We will be back next week to discuss the uh, holiday film. Uh, we are excited for a good old roast. It's about time. And we will be discussing the film Holiday. We hope you have an amazing week and we'll see you next week.